Well, good morning, and we're so glad you are here for worship, whether you're here in the worship center or all of you in the chapel or anyone who's watching online or anyone at our Minnetonka campus. It's so good to worship together as a church family. So we're finishing up our sermon series today called Asking for a Friend. And I think it's been a great time this fall as we've looked at some of the big questions of faith that you have asked. In August, we put out a request. We said, you know, submit your big questions. And so we've tried to cover a bunch of those during this series. But, you know, today as we finish up the series, we thought, you know, it'd be good to, you know, maybe do something a little lighter, a little more fun, maybe. And so the question we're going to cover this morning is this. What about the end times? So just pray for me, please, especially for reactions after the service. (laughs) So the end times has become really a part of our popular culture. There are people who have very little knowledge about the Christian faith or maybe never stepped foot in a church, but because of pop culture, they have some pretty big opinions and ideas about the end times. The end times have also had a pretty profound effect on art and media, not just in recent history, but for many, many centuries. Also, the end times can be very divisive, even amidst Christians and churches. And it's even sometimes become a point of identity for Christians, where maybe they'll say, yes, I I believe in Jesus, but I'm also this type of end times Christian. And sometimes we kind of segregate into particular groups. And sometimes the end times views that people have are elevated to kind of a litmus test for who's in and who's out. It's not just about, do you believe in Jesus? But it's, do you believe this about the end times? And if you don't, well, maybe you're not in anymore. So right off the bat, I want to let you know that this message is going to address what Jesus had to say about the end times. It's not gonna be about all the different narratives that have been cobbled together and extrapolated from random scripture kind of put together. No, there's maybe a different time and place for that. But we're gonna look at what Jesus himself had to say about the end of times. Now, at a church as large as Calvary, we know that there are people maybe all over the map when it comes to the end times, and that's okay with us. For us, this is what we would call a discuss or a defend issue. Maybe you've seen this before. It's called our vision culture. If you've never been through our vision culture, I'd encourage you to attend one of our Calvary 101 classes where we go into much more depth. But when it comes to our beliefs, we have what's called our die, defend, and discuss issues. We want to be very careful about what those things that we'll die for are. What are the things that are so essential that we hold them to the highest level? And if you want to know what our die issues are, you can go to calvary.org and find our beliefs statements. But we also believe there are other things that we can just simply defend or even discuss. There are things that maybe we won't all see eye to eye on, and that's okay. We can still have unity. We can still work together in mission. And so for us, the particulars, the timeline, the camps when it comes to the end times are something that we can defend or something that we can discuss. 
When it comes to what we'll die for, we believe that there is Christian unity around a statement that has been around for over 15 or maybe even 1,700 years. And we say it when we say the Apostles' Creed. We believe unity within the Christian faith is in this statement. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will come again. It's a promise that he made. And when he comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. And this is something that binds us together with Christians around the world, but also Christians throughout history. But even that simple biblical historical truth can lead to a lot of other questions, right? We might then say, well, okay, but when and how and what order and in what form and who's involved and how will it all go down? And so people over history and especially just in the last century or so have come up with different end times narratives, and they're given big titles, maybe you've heard of or maybe not, but there are some people who call themselves premillennials. And within the premillennial camp, there's also pre-trib and mid-trib and post-trib. There's also others that consider themselves amillennial and there's others that are post-millennial. And then there are many, many other camps and narratives Personally, I really appreciate what Tony Campolo, who's a theologian and an author, once said. He said, I'm a pan-millennial. I believe in the end it will all pan out. (laughs) I don't know. I take comfort in that. But here's the thing. If you're really, really interested in those various camps and narratives, some different ways that people have approached the end times, especially in the last century or so, I want to invite you to come and, inv- uh, come and join Pastor Dan and I on Wednesday nights here at the Golden Valley campus starting November 8th, because we're going to do a deep, deep dive into the book of Revelation But as we do, we're going to see that Revelation is really not a book that should bring a lot of fear and terror like it often does. Instead, it's really a book of hope. And we're going to trace the recent history and the problematic nature of many of the pop culture end times narratives that people have grasped onto. So again, if you're interested in that, come and join us on Wednesdays starting November 8th. But meanwhile, if you are tempted to go and investigate or to embrace any particular end times narrative, I have a few words of caution for you, some red flags to look for. And here's just a few. Number one, it's a red flag if it is rooted in fear. If you're watching TikTok these days or YouTube, there are different people that are making some pretty big predictions, especially because of what's happening in the Middle East. And a lot of times, what is essentially being told to us is we should be afraid. But remember, the most common command throughout the Old and New Testament is simply, don't be afraid. We can trust in God and his good, good plan. And so make sure that your antenna is up for any end times narrative that's rooted in fear. Number two, if it relies on human actions, sometimes the implication is given that, you know, if we just adjust some country's borders, or if we just shift some people groups to a different place, or if we just manipulate some events, then we can trigger the end times. But what does that do? 
It puts us in control. And that should be a huge red flag if it relies on us over and above God. Number three, if it involves codes. You might be aware that for a number of decades now, there are a lot of books and websites about different codes in the Bible. That if you somehow take all the numbers and you assign letters to them, you can spell out some sort of message that applies today. And this has been going on for quite a while. For a while, it's, you know, these different images in Revelation apply to Hitler or to Stalin. Or then when that didn't work, well, then they apply to Saddam Hussein and then they apply and each generation sometimes tries to find this code or this mystery throughout scripture but that's not how god operates that's not the essence of his character god is upfront and honest with us he makes very clear promises and not only that he is present with us each and every day through the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't need to be a code that is cracked. Number four, if it predicts the future, we'll talk about this in a moment, but for many, many centuries, people have seemingly thought that they figured out the day that Jesus is coming back, that we can somehow predict exactly how these things will take place. But again, that goes against what Jesus actually says. And again, it puts us in the place of God. Number five, if it includes destruction, some end times narratives essentially say at some point, this entire world is gonna get nuked. It's gonna get blown up. It's gonna get wiped out. And that's led to some maybe less than ideal behavior where Christians have either kind of seceded from society and just said, well, it's all gonna get destroyed eventually. Or even sometimes it's justification to not take care of God's good creation because why should we care if it's all gonna go away? But especially if you come to our Revelation class, you're gonna see that's not at all what God promises. That instead he is coming to earth to restore all things. He's not gonna blow it up. He's gonna bring restoration. He's gonna bring goodness. He's gonna heal all the brokenness. Number six, if the ending is ever in question, it should be a huge red flag. There are some end times narratives that are kind of like, well, we hope it plays out in the way that we're saying, but you never know, we might all mess it up. And then it's, you know, kind of down the tubes. Well, we know how the story ends. God's victory is assured because of Jesus. And we can't ever forget that. So if you encounter an end time story or narrative where the ending is in question, it's a huge, huge red flag. So instead of speculating about all the possible scenarios and timelines and stories, let's look for where we can find true comfort and peace. And that's in Jesus's own words and his own teaching about the end of times. And you might notice this morning, we're not going to really get into the book of Revelation at all. And we're not going to get into the book of Daniel at all. Again, if you're interested in that, come join us on November 8th. But we're going to go to the most important source, Jesus himself. We're going to see what he wants us to know and what he wants us to stand on. But before we dive into that, I want you to think back to when you were a kid, 
And I'm going to tell you about an experience I had, but I think many of you can relate to it. So I grew up on a cul-de-sac and there were a lot of kids, a lot of neighbor kids. And in the evenings, we would all meet out in the cul-de-sac and we would try to decide what we were going to do for fun. So sometimes we'd have a pickup baseball game or kickball or football. But a lot of times we'd have a huge multi-neighborhood game of hide and seek. Do you ever play that with your friends? Now, for us, what we would do is we'd pick who's going to be it. And there was a giant pine tree that they would stand by. We'd give them a arbitrary number to count to, like 782. All right. And then we'd have that amount of time to go find the very best hiding place in our neighborhood. So for some, it was to go into kind of the stand of trees. There was a pond you could go near that was kind of overgrown. Some people would try to hide under cars. A few times we got on top of people's houses. We tried to find the very, very best hiding spot. Meanwhile, the person who's it is supposed to be shielding their eyes and they're counting down from whatever number we gave them. And finally, when they get to one, what would they yell? They say, ready or not, here I come. And you better have your hiding spot, right? But the temptation as kind of kids, you know, was like, all right, is this the best spot? How much time do I have? Maybe I could run to another spot and not get caught. But the problem was, if you didn't time it out right, you wouldn't be ready, right? Well, the reason I tell that story is, I think one of the biggest themes we're going to see as Jesus talks about the end times is how important it is to be ready. So again, one of the major points of Christian, Christian doctrine is simply the idea and the fact that Jesus is coming again. It's often called the second coming. Acts chapter 1 1 Thessalonians 4 and many, many other passages say one day God will come to put things right. He will restore all things on earth and all the brokenness and pain and sadness and suffering that we experience every day will be no more. And Jesus will take center stage in this process. Now, one of my favorite stories that references the second coming is in Acts chapter one. So you might remember the story. At this point, Jesus died on the cross. He rose again on Easter. Over the course of many days, he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of his followers. And now he's finally having his last words in person with his disciples, and he wants them to be ready. He wants them to have a commission to go and share the good news of what he's done. And then at that point, Jesus ascends into heaven. And his, his disciples are standing there staring into the sky. Like, what would you do if your best friend ascended into the sky? So they're standing there just staring and these angels show up. And I love it. They just like go right at it. They're like, what are you guys staring at? And this is what they say to the disciples in Acts 1.11. They say, this same Jesus who was just taken up to heaven will come back in exactly the same way. And it's that promise that became their hope and their confidence as they went out to further his mission. 
And that same idea that Jesus is coming again is our hope and our confidence and our strength that no matter how out of control this world might seem, no matter how hopeless we might feel on an everyday basis, whether it's amidst persecution or ridicule or struggle or pain, or lately, probably most likely, indifference from the rest of the world. Christians can cling to this promise. Jesus is coming again. But of course, the disciples wanted more, just like we do. They wanted to know how this is all going to go down. So they asked the question. At another point, when Jesus was pointing to this promise. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 36. See, the disciples come and they say, Jesus, we want to know when, and we want to know how, and we want some clues to look for. Like, give us more, more than just the idea that you're coming again. So this is how Jesus responds. He says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. When the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't even realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you, too, must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Jesus anticipates human nature and human curiosity of his disciples, but also of us. Because wouldn't it be great to know exactly when he was coming again? I mean, it's just like when we're having company over, you kind of want to know when they're going to show up, right? Because you can get your house ready. You can go run some errands. You can make sure your kids are on their best behavior. I mean, when your company shows up when you don't know they're coming, it causes all sorts of anxiety, right? Well, if we could just put Jesus's arrival time in our Google calendar, you know, wouldn't it make it that much easier? We could make sure that we've got all our things in order. We don't double book ourselves. Maybe you want to take a shower before Jesus comes. Who knows? But Jesus anticipates how we get bogged down in the details. The early Christians were convinced that Jesus would reappear in their lifetime. And they were convinced he would be coming back within that first generation. But when it became increasingly clear that he wasn't, it was a struggle for them. 
In the year 1000, it was so widely believed to be the year that Jesus would come again that history tells us many, many farmers didn't even plant their crops that year. Martin Luther in the 1500s wrote, this world will certainly not last much longer. In the year 1666, there was an explosion of end time speculation. One pastor wrote in his journal, every time a storm has hit this year, the church is full of people waiting for Jesus. There was a man named William Miller who predicted that Christ would return in 1844. And all over the northeastern part of America, Adventists waited for the end of the world. And they believed it was going to happen on October 22nd, 1844. And journalists had a field day. All the major newspapers scrambled their reporters to go talk to these people. Some of them were on top of mountains because they wanted to be the first ones in heaven. There were others who went to cemeteries because they wanted to go to heaven with their deceased loved ones. There were some socialite women in Philadelphia who gathered together outside the city limits because they didn't want to enter heaven with any commoners at all. Well, that day, October 22nd, 1844, is now known as the Great Disappointment. There was a second great disappointment and actually a third great disappointment. And ever since then, every few years, you hear about someone who's absolutely convinced that Jesus is coming back on some specific date. Even today, many people are busy looking for signs and codes about Jesus's return that somehow a world leader or a disaster, or a war, or another world event somehow points to a specific timeline. There's an amazing amount of books that get published every year. There's people with late night shows on television that are hawking end times gear. There's actually a website that I found that every day gives an index of how likely it is that the world would end on any particular day. So it takes everything that's happening in the world and it gives a numerical value. So I did you a service, I looked yesterday and the number that I was given corresponds with the slogan, buckle your seatbelts. And it's four points off the highest the index has ever been. Obviously though, all of these different people have forgotten Jesus's own words in Matthew 24, 36. He says, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven, but this is surprising, or the son himself, only the father knows. Jesus clearly says, even he doesn't know when it's going to be. It's up to the Father. Jesus is operating in trust and faith, just like we need to operate in trust and faith. You see, the problem is getting caught up in this kind of end times thinking and obsession can cause us to miss out on what's actually important. I mean, imagine for a moment that we actually did know the exact time that he was coming again and how we might be inclined to react in some less than favorable ways. 
there might be a temptation to just do whatever we want and then say we're sorry at the very last second. We might lose our focus and our interest on the rest of the world because we'd think, well, we're good to go. Why should we worry about anyone else? And again, we see this all too often with these groups that go up on a mountain or they secede from society. God knows that we have this temptation oftentimes to take our eyes off the ball and to get bogged down in all the details. You see, a truth that we take from Jesus's words is this. Your life matters right now. Your life today matters to God. We can't let a focus on the end of time get in, get in the way of making the most of what God has put before us in our life today. Remember, Jesus first came into the world to rescue and to save sinners like you and me. His first coming that we will celebrate in just a few months at Christmas was unexpected and it was revolutionary. And Jesus's time on earth ended with his death and his resurrection. He became a sacrifice for our sins. He became the solution to our biggest problem. And he invites us to find forgiveness and hope and new life in him. Because of what he has done for us, we can have hope. But then he promises, he promises to one day come back and gather his followers together. And that means there's more hope. It's like hope squared. And so in Matthew 24, Jesus describes his second coming. And he talks about a selection that will take place, that some will be taken away, just like those who perished in the great flood in the Old Testament. But he says others will be safe, like Noah and his family on the ark. Now, pop culture has twisted this, especially in the Left Behind series, if you're familiar with it, where there are many, many big, big problems, and we don't have time to get into that now, but come on November 8th, and we'll definitely address it. But you see, in this image that Jesus gives, it's not about us as Christians being airlifted out of here. No, instead, it's for us to be faithful amidst the struggle and the trial and the conflicts. And that we are able to do this because of God's help and grace. Look at John three sixteen to 18. Now, many of you are familiar with this first half, but maybe less so with the second half. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see, this selection that Jesus references in Matthew 24 and is also referenced in John 3 is already taken place even before Jesus comes again. And this initial selection is not made by him. It's made by us 
as individuals. Each person who chooses to put their trust and their faith in Jesus has the promise of salvation and life in him. We've made our selection. And if we wish to remain with him on the day that he returns, we must trust with all our hearts that his death and his resurrection is all that we need for salvation. We receive his free gift of grace. But here's the thing. There are many Christians today who have made the end times full of fear and terror and anxiety. But on the day Jesus comes again, it should be a day of great joy for all those who are following him. You see, church, you can have assurance and you can have hope and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus keeps his promises. Look at what he says in John 14. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I mean, be honest here. How many of us have troubled hearts today? But Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So the question is, where are you at today? Have you trusted Jesus with your heart and your life? Have you chosen to follow him? Because our eternal destiny, when the end comes, is based solely on whether we've trusted him or not. Whether we have responded to his gracious call on our lives. You know, in Jesus's description, there's no advance warning. He doesn't say, mark this day down. You don't get a wake-up call at the last second. And that means there's no more time for bargaining or rationalizing or trying to share our resume or giving a PowerPoint presentation. No, the question is right now, at this moment, are you ready for Jesus to come? And so at the end of his words in Matthew 24, Jesus says, keep watch and be ready. He's coming again in glory and in power to judge the living and the dead, like we say in the Apostles' Creed. But look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in the night. You're not going to get this big, complicated timeline. You're not going to get a little thing on your calendar. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And so again, you need to keep watch and you need to be ready. See, one day Jesus is going to call out, ready or not, here I come. Well, maybe not literally, but I like the image. And all of the followers of Jesus are going to be ready. 
But you might say, well, what does that look like? So I want to give you two things. Number one, our daily walk with Jesus is important. It means daily. I must repent. Repent's just a churchy word that means to turn around. Daily, I must repent because I don't know when Jesus is coming again and I want to be ready. Daily, I must repent because daily, I sin. Sin just means to miss the mark. It means to disobey God. And we all do this in countless ways. But because of Jesus, I can repent again and again. And he gives us the forgiveness and a fresh start that we need. And all of that has to happen daily if we're truly honest with ourselves. Because how many of us are like the Peanuts comic strip where we want to change, but we just can't help ourselves? You might remember that there was a common theme in the Peanuts comic strip where Lucy would hold the football. You remember how this went? And Charlie Brown would be all excited because he was going to kick the football. And what would happen? At the last minute, Lucy would grab the football away. Charlie Brown would fall flat on his back. And it happened again and again. Well, one of my favorites came when in the comic strip, Charlie Brown refused to kick the ball. He finally wised up. And Lucy begged and begged and begged him to kick the ball. But Charlie Brown said, every time I try to kick the ball, you remove it and I fall flat on my back. So they went back and forth for the longest time. And finally, Lucy broke down in tears and admitted, Charlie Brown, I have been so, so terrible to you over the years, picking up the football like I have. I have played so many cruel tricks on you, but I've seen the error of my ways. I've seen the hurt in your eyes when I've deceived you. I've been wrong. I've been so wrong. Won't you give a poor penitent girl another chance? And Charlie Brown was moved by her grief. And he responded, of course, I'll give you another chance. So he stepped back. She held the ball. And you know exactly what happened, right? At the last minute, she pulled the ball away. He fell flat on his back. But I love Lucy's last words. She said, recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things, Charlie Brown. But that goes for us, right? But the good news is because of our relationship with Jesus, we're assured of our forgiveness, but also we're given the help to change our ways through the Holy Spirit. I love what Martin Luther says in his small catechism about baptism. He says this, our sinful self with all of its evil deeds and desires should be drowned through daily repentance. That's what it looks like to be ready. And that day after day, a new self should arise to live in righteousness and purity forever. It's a daily process of being ready because of his grace. We can be ready for him to come again. Number two, it means following Jesus's example and being obedient to his word. What does that mean? It means make his priorities your priorities. It means live with his values, not the values of this world. Jesus gave us the great commission 
and the great commandments. The great commission says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Well, what does that mean? It means go and share the story of Jesus. But really, when it comes down to it, it means make sure other people are ready for Jesus to come again. Who are the people in your sphere of influence who aren't ready? Who are the people that you know who need to hear the good news so that they too can be ready? The great commandment simply says, love God and love other people. I mean, it's what Jesus did throughout his ministry. He found ways to serve others and to love others. And he tells us to go and do the same. And you see, when we serve others and we treat others with love, well, then they get a picture of Jesus working through us. We can change people's lives by loving them the way that Jesus loves them. So church, remember this. When you get confused or anxious or afraid of the end times, cling to this truth. Jesus is coming again. And that means there is a reason for hope. So make sure that you're ready. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. We give you thanks for the gift of Jesus. We give you thanks for the hope that we can have amidst the hopelessness and the pain and the struggle of this world. We thank you for the confidence we can have in your promise that you one day will make all things right. That because of you, there will be no more pain or crying or death. And so God, help us to live for you. Help us to live each day ready for whatever will come next. Help us to keep watch for that, great, that glorious day when Jesus will come and gather his followers to himself. And God, help us to not keep the good news to ourselves. Help us to unashamedly and boldly share the good news of the gospel with every person we meet. Help us to love others like you've loved us. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for your hope. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together.